0: Megan thanks uh good to be with you all in here keep coming we'll keep being here um, we'll let you know if that changes um got a, a fun talk today I'm really excited about being in, back in the gospel of Luke again for the 20th straight week or whatever it is but before we get in there let me just chat for a second uh what a crazy world right pretty overwhelming uh pretty chaotic uh, not really sure all that's going on. It seems that uh, the world changes with each and every day, and um, the news changes, and you don't know what's true and what's not true, and, boy, is it polarized. I don't know if you've picked up on that. Maybe over Thanksgiving you experienced that with your family. I mean, there are, there are very, very um, extreme feelings in this, and what we've talked about over and over again in our church is as it relates to COVID, there are many folks that are just completely in that red phase, full stop, you know, shelter in place, stay out of harm's way. And what we've said is you have every right to be in that spot if that's where you are and no judgments, right? And then we have people in our church fully on the other side in the fully green phase going, look, I'm more concerned about my family's mental health than I am their physical health right now, right? And so you're trying to keep as much normalcy as possible and you're fully green and you're going where you need to go and doing what you need to do, do and no judgment uh, you're allowed to be there right and there's many of us that kind of exist almost like the hokey pokey right in that yellow phase of we're putting our right foot in taking it out and just not real sure and pretty hopeful this summer that things are, you know kind of shaping back up and getting back to normal and kind of thought maybe by the time we get here, uh, we'll be back to whatever normalcy was, and it hasn't happened, and um, we got a couple of different things. One, we've got to figure out how to be appropriate and caring and, and you know, honoring to those in charge, and yet at the same time, we got to figure out how to live our life, and it's just a really complicated place, and so many of us are in that yellow phase, and you're welcome to be there, and what I just ask of you, boy, I'd ask of you, and man, we just... Be very conservative with our judgment and very liberal with our grace and curiosity. Okay, use those terms intentionally there because those are hot button issues. We'll be both conservative and liberal. We'll be very, very conservative with our judgment and very, very liberal with our grace and curiosity because I am convinced, you're convinced, we know this, we know this, all of us, wherever you are, right? That if we knew more of everyone's story, the way we'd respond to them. It's a lot different than how we typically react to them and so let's just be real quick to listen slow to get angry and all this and i just want you to hear this from us as a kind of me representing kind of the staff and leadership of our church we're not going anywhere got it like our staff is here for you our elders are here for you at all times we're not going anywhere you can count on us And literally, the story of what the series we're in, God With Us, is literally about presence and partnership. And we take those things really serious. We want to be with you, and we want to partner alongside you for the sake of the gospel. And so if you feel completely alone, whether that's right here in the sanctuary or on the parking lot or in your actual home right now, or maybe you're going to watch this in your office space, would you please, 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 have the courage to not be alone. Would you just self-identify? Would you just tell us? Would you let us know? However that is, you can call our church, 610-869-2140. You can text us at any time. You can email us, info at clcfamily.church or if it's easier, just email me directly, josh at clcfamily.church. Molly is back from maternity leave and so she helps me with that email address so I can make sure to cover all those. So please, please, please let us know. Um, If you know some people in our church that probably need to be reached out to, would you, remember this is presence and partnership would you have the courage and the willingness to reach out to them if you know someone that we need to reach out to would you just let us know like we're just not going anywhere and we're not going to just wait for all this to pass over we got work to do and we have life to live in the middle of this chaos so I just want you to know we're not going anywhere. we'll keep being here week after week and stay available for you all for our church family for our community And i cannot wait 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 to share with you in the next couple of weeks about how our church is going to pivot and position itself to really really serve the needs of our community over the next several months if not several years really some good stuff coming up real soon but uh, i'll share with that to you as, as share it with you as soon as we work out a lot of the details But some really neat stuff that we'll all get to partner with so anyway not really part of the sermon but it's part of the sermon uh that god's with us we believe that he wants us to experience his presence and participate with him in partnership so let's do that together we're available okay yeah again 610-869-2140 call text if you need someone to pray with you yeah, just just actually a little there's an option there that you can select I don't I don't know what it is on the phone tree but you'll hear it and someone will call you back and pray with you over the phone whatever we can do we're with you okay we're with you as God is with us and so just take some deep breaths together don't beat yourself up for whatever emotions you're feeling you're allowed to feel them okay and just please don't do it alone let's do this together and uh, so keep coming back, keep showing up, keep logging in, we're here. and uh, So if you are new with us, first time, or haven't been here for a while, just a reminder we teach you what's called a series, that just means it takes us a long time to get through any idea, and you'll pick up on that if you're here today, because it takes a long time to get all the way around the barn. And So we kind of teach, and my preference would be just to kind of work through a book of the Bible so we really understand it, and that's what we've been doing. We've been studying this book of the Bible called the Gospel of Luke, and Luke was a Uh, First century investigative journalist, okay? But uh, before he was an investigative journalist, this is all true, uh, he was a doctor and a scientist, right? And so um, as he was practicing his medical profession, this, what we believe to be a Roman official, real guy in real history, Theophilus, hires Luke, literally pays him a research grant, essentially, to go and spend years, if not a decade, researching whether or not Theophilus and us could trust the story of Jesus, right? And so Luke, when he writes it, he tells us how he gathered all this data, he eyewitness accounts, he went and listened to all the oral arguments and statements about Jesus, about the world, and written, read all the written documents, and then he puts together what he calls an orderly or chronological account so that we may have certainty about the things we've been taught. But when he's talking about the things that we've been taught about, both Theophilus and us, he's talking specifically about this guy, Jesus, right? And so he goes, hey, I write all this, So that we could have certainty about the things we've been taught. What I remind you over and over again is the Bible is both timeless, timely. So timely. Luke writes this specifically to Theophilus, Roman official, who is used to saying Caesar is Lord. And Luke's going, "Ah, I wouldn't say that anymore. It's not true. But here's what you can say, because I can give you some certainty on it, that Jesus is Lord. And so timely, right to Theophilus, but also timeless, 2,000 years later is just as specific, just as important, just as applicable today to us so we can still have certainty about the things we've been taught And at the highest level. What we've been taught is that Jesus is the promise of all the fulfillment. So if we were to break down the Old Testament, New Testament, 66 books, we just kind of would divide it in a couple parts. The whole Old Testament is all about promise. That one day God would be back with us. That one day he would make all things right. That he would make everything sad, untrue. Right? He tells us one day there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. One day that is going to be a promise that's as good as done. And so the whole Old Testament is all about God promising his people that he will make things right again. And you understand that. You have a longing for that. Even if you're not a Christian, you definitely understand that there is something broken and off in our world. Right? And uh, the Old Testament, written over... Over more than a thousand years, fifteen hundred years, the Old Testament is kind of this declaration that people can kept trying to figure things out on their own, but they just messed it up even more. Right? You know how that's like when you try to dig yourself out of a hole with your spouse, when you're trying to explain your behavior and why you did what you did and why they shouldn't have done what they did. And, you know, you get further and further down the argument, and you kind of wish you could rewind and not do the argument at all and just go, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, just be done, right? So the whole Old Testament is people trying over and over again to try to fix things themselves, and every single time it just got worse, they'd cry out to God, and God would go, I'll meet you where you are, but they'll also make this promise that one day this won't just be a Band-Aid solution, And there will be an actual solution for salvation, for God's presence, for God's partnership, for all eternity. So the whole Old Testament is all about promise. Therefore, the New Testament is all about fulfillment of all the promises. And what's crazy is the one who fulfills all the promises, every single one of them. This is crazy. This is crazy. Every single fulfillment of all the promises is all found in this guy, Jesus. So what we've been doing, weird Christmas series, is we've been looking at Jesus coming and fulfilling all the promises and uh, we've called this series God With Us that comes from Isaiah chapter 9 where, he, where we get this prophecy that God will send a fulfillment of all the promises a Savior and he will be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so what we've been kind of looking at is this whole idea that God only had one plan since the beginning of time to the end of time, and the plan was always to fulfill all of his promises in Jesus. So because God with us is more than a baby story— And more than a resurrection story, just made sense So we'd actually see all these different times that God was actually with us in the form of Jesus. And we get to see how all of those times that Jesus showed up and was with his people 2,000 years ago, how they applied to everything in the future and everything in the past. So if you see this long black line on this uh, felt board, it's because of this. We've kind of been jumping back and forth throughout history and looking at the timeline. And so let me just give you some spots on it, right? And so way out here, sometime in the the very very end of the world right there'd be this time that jesus returns it makes all things new that's where he said he, uh, there'll be no more pain and no more sorrow he'll wipe every tear from our eyes that's going to come one day right we don't know when that is jesus says he didn't even know when that is so we're not going to even try to predict that we're just going to put this year 2020 really fun year somewhere here and so there's 2020 and so we've kind of been looking at how does what happens here affect everything here so how did what jesus did here apply to us here and how does what Jesus do here apply to everything here, right? Oh, so he's kind of been working through it. And so where we've been of just kind of looking at these different stories of Jesus kind of starting this new ministry and partnership where he shows up with his people and he invites them into his presence and he invites them into his partnership. And we saw last week this really funny story where Jesus shows up and meets with this tax collector. Right? So this guy named Levi, and you'll have to go back to listen to last week's sermon if you want to know why this is so significant. But Levi was not a light guy. He was a tax collector, which is the worst of the worst of sinners. But Jesus shows up and invites him into both his presence and his partnership. And so what Levi does is he throws this big feast, this big party, and celebrates Jesus, and we see the beauty of Jesus being with us and what that means for the here and now, Right? There's still lots of life to live. There's still lots of parties to throw. There's still lots of feasts to be had, even in the middle of our chaotic world. And so we see this 2,000 years ago where Levi, this tax collector, literally leaves everything, all of his money, all of his security, all of his comfort, and then throws this feast with all of his pagan buddies and friends and all of the the worst of the worst with Jesus. And all of a sudden, while this is happening, these these groups of people, this is the third week in a row they're going to show up, these groups of people see it happen. uh, In the scriptures, they're referred to as the Pharisees, okay, and the scribes. Now, scribes, uh, Old Testament, were these guys who were responsible for writing. All the books of the Bible, right? They were the, literally, they were the Xerox team. Got it. They were the ones who wrote it. But as they were the ones who were writing the Scriptures, what happened is they became the ones that became the most familiar with the Scriptures. Right? You can see some scribes in the Old Testament. Ezra would be a scribe in the Old Testament. And so the scribes became the people who would be writing the Scriptures, who then became the ones who were uh, teaching people how to navigate the Scriptures. And they were seen as these brilliant, white-collar church scholars. Right? I mean, they were professional Jews and each one of these scribes because they were teaching each week multiple times and they had their own following of people who would kind of fund their ministry right and so these scribes would have Pharisees. Pharisees were working class people who had this this idea of how you behaved I told you a couple weeks ago and then again last week they believed in this three degrees of separation they believed there's this job that they should be the word Pharisee literally means separated right so they were separate from the rest of the world because they were holy No, they had other jobs they were working-class people, and yet they followed these scribes, and they spent all their time and energy together debating the Scriptures and talking about how much how much better they were at following it than the rest of the world. Got it? So if you know any people that really spend all their time and energy talking about how bad our culture is and how bad our world is and spend all their time just judging other people— That's a Pharisee, right? So just a lot of times I'm going, hey, can we be really, really conservative with our judgment, really, really liberal with our grace and curiosity? Pharisees weren't that. They were very liberal with their uh, judgment and very conservative with their grace and curiosity. So they were guys who made declarations over and over again about what was wrong. And so we saw two weeks ago when Jesus heals this paralytic, when he's lowered down to a roof, the Pharisees and the scribes are right there judging the whole thing. Very liberal with their judgment. Then we saw last week, Matthew throws this party, and the Pharisees and the scribes are whispering to the disciples. Why is he eating with those people? Like, Remember, they did not only believe that they couldn't be around sinners, so clueless about who they were, but they couldn't even be around people who were around sinners, that third degree of separation. And so these guys go to the disciples and go, how in the world would Jesus do this? That's wrong, and make this very liberal, quick judgment. So we see the Pharisees over and over again. We're going to see them again. This week, and so they're having this meal, and they are celebrating. So now, all of a sudden, we have the disciples, Jesus' first followers. These are Matthew. Um, so you got Levi, or uh, a lot of people believe this is Matthew, the writer of the book of Matthew, just different name, Matthew. And then you have uh, Peter and Andrew. These are fishermen. John and James, the sons of Zebedee, or Thunder. That's a neat wrestling name. And. Uh, the four of them have now started following Jesus. So you've got these fishermen, Jewish fishermen, who have had lots of taxes collected on them. And you got Levi, the tax collector. They're all at the same feast throwing a party, and this just doesn't make any sense to them. These are people who should not be on, in the same room at the same time eating a meal together. This is more than they sit on different sides of the aisle, right? They would not be near each other, and they're all throwing this party. These Pharisees and scribes are really, really confused. About what happened, and if they offered some judgment two weeks ago when we read it, and just a day or two earlier when Jesus heals the paralytic, and they offer some judgment, we read last week just a few hours earlier or a few minutes earlier about Jesus eating with sinners. They're going to offer some more judgment. So let's see what they have to say, and we'll see how we can respond. Lots of fun. Luke chapter 5, I'm reading th- uh, verses 33 through 39 today, but I'm going to jump around in the book of Psalm and. Uh, in Psalms and Corinthians as well. So lots of places to go. So here we go. Here's what it says. This is Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. And it says this. And they said to him, the they here, just so we understand, is the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones offering judgment. Got it? And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. In real quick, liberal terms of judgment there. We're talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist it was kind of the front runner for who was Isaiah from, you know, 700 years earlier, saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him, move every mountaintop, fill in every valley, make every crooked path straight so that everybody can see God's salvation. He was the one that was yelling, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He was the one when Jesus finally showed up, says, behold, pay attention, for the there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this is the guy whose whole job was basically the trumpet of the ear to announce that God was with us, right? And so John the Baptist, what we know about John the Baptist is uh, he— Thing when you see these crazy movements start. They don't start in like in the in the, in, in the main line, right? I mean, it's out in the middle of nowhere. This is a bunch of people who have kind of been outcast. John's an outcast. These people are outcasts, and he's offering them repentance, meaning change the way they think, and he's baptizing them and showing them there's a new day and a new option. And one of the things they did often, uh, John's followers did, is they fasted. So we got to figure this out. So these guys are going, the Pharisees are going, we fast, and John fasts. But Jesus and his buddies don't fast. This is major judgment. This is major indictment. Now this isn't just for Jesus. This is for all of people watching, because guess what? The scribes and Pharisees don't want people to follow Jesus. They want people to follow them. Why? Because where they, the more followers you have, the more money you have. Right? It's just really that simple. And if you want to follow the 21st century church, it's the same thing. It's interesting, the bigger the buildings, the larger the mortgages, the, the more careful you have to be with what you say, and the more judgmental you are to other people who do different things the way you do, because there's all this concern about the amount of people and the amount of money. So Pharisees describes no different, follow the money two thousand years ago. So they weren't just chastising Jesus. They were chastising Jesus in front of all these people, going, No, 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 you can't follow him. You gotta keep following me. I need to count on your thirty-nine dollars a month, right? That, so it's a messy deal. So they're making this declaration. And what they have decided now, first they said Jesus can't take away sins. Then he proved it, made man walk. And then Jesus is welcoming other people. Those are pretty intriguing things to follow. This guy can fix me, and this guy can let me feast with him. Those are very, very um, enticing things. Uh, reasons to follow, right? This guy can invite me into his life and we can still have fun. This guy can invite me into his life and we can see miraculous things happen. Yeah, I I want in on that. So the Pharisees and the scribes are going, but yeah, but he's not very godly because he doesn't fast. So they're going to take a moment to call out fasting, okay? They're going to take a moment to call out fasting. So they're going to go, Jesus doesn't fast, okay? So what we know so far is the Pharisees and scribes, they fast that john the baptist fasted and sometimes we fast but there's not there's not a lot of mandates in the scripture about fasting so let me just take a few minutes real quick and this is just a couple of words i'm going to use you're not going to find them in scripture so just to help kind of frame it what the, on what fasting is so what's the purpose jesus actually rebukes people for fake fasting or making it be more dramatic than it is so we got to figure out why in the world do people fast So there's some stuff in the Old Testament, stuff in the New Testament. But when we look at fasting, my words, okay, so you're not going to find these in the Bible just to help put a framework for it, right? There's kind of two major reasons throughout the scriptures, even I would say now in the 21st century as far as we've been, there's kind of two big pillars for the reason that people fast. Okay, this is generalized. There's probably some more nuanced reasons, but here's kind of the two big, big reasons, right? The first one is magnifying, okay? So uh, one of the major reasons we fast, people fasted, was actually to put their focus and magnification on God, right? So kind of the thought is when you're hungry, it makes you think all the time about your hunger, Okay? Some people are fasting, or if you're fasting from food, or if you're fasting from technology. All this time that you're usually bent towards doing those things. Your mind is used to those things. When those things come up, the reason that it happens with food, as those hunger pains happen, what it does for us, or what it should do, is it should take our focus, we should work on taking our focus off the temporal, the appetite, and focus on the permanent God himself. Right? So a big part of fasting was all about people longing to see God In a much larger level in their life. The reason I use the word magnify, not a different word, is God doesn't get bigger, right? It's not like somehow when you fast, God increases his power, or when you fast, God, you know, gains a little bit more Christmas cheer. It's not like there's that somehow, like our fasting, you know, is some kind of IV to God that makes him bigger and more sustained right? That's why I like the word magnify here. It just means you can see it better. When you magnify something, you're not making, you're not actually making it bigger. You're just making it more focused and easier to see. You got it? And so one of the big reasons for fasting throughout the Old Testament, even now, is actually to magnify God's presence and God's reality in our life. So God, we say that you're greater than our greatest things. We're going to, we're going to go ahead and uh, sacrifice temporal pleasure in hopes that we can experience you and see you at a greater level so all this was about seeing god so throughout the old testament when people really wanted kind of this move of god when they wanted to see him at work then they would fast and so one of the interesting things about this is there's this thing called the um reticular activation system okay um it's something that some way that your eyeball and your brain are connected i can't quite explain it mark Batterson uh, wrote about it in a pit with a lion on a snowy day talking about prayer and what he says is he argues that reticular activation system is a lot like, is, is kind of like how we how prayer works for us now and so the way reticular activation system works is um let's say you want a i don't know a new tesla right some kind of or let me give a better example because uh, i i'm actually very interested in the jeep gladiators that's the four-door jeeps with the truck bed, right uh, uh really really like those and i think in my head Ah, there's nobody that has any of those. Are you like the Tesla. And you're like, nobody in this area has one. Now, all of a sudden, you thought about the Tesla, or maybe you've gone and purchased the Tesla, or maybe it's just a new pair of shoes. You go, I'm going to get those red Converse, because no one else has the red Converse, and you go and buy them, right? And guess what happens? Almost immediately after you buy them or start noticing them or get them, you start looking around, and guess what? They're everywhere, there's Teslas everywhere. There's red converse everywhere. There's Jeep Gladiators everywhere. You know how that worked in your head? That literally is the reticular activation system. There is some kind of connection. Your little eyeball brain with your big brain. Uh, don't email me. That's obviously your eyeball doesn't have a brain. I get that. But that connection, right? That there's something in there that makes you more aware of something now that you've started thinking about it and noticing it. Okay? So Mark Batterson says, that's kind of like what prayer is. It's not like God isn't always working, but when you pray about it, all of a sudden it kind of, you know, creates this reticular spiritual activation system, right? And so God, kind of like I said, so I would say fasting's kind of in the same thing. It's not like all of a sudden you fast and God says, oh, I'm going to do something now, right? God is always at work. In fact, even when you see the story of Elijah in the Old Testament where he's waiting for rain to finally come, he sends his servant out seven different times, right, number of completion. And finally, on the seventh time, he says, there's this little bitty tiny cloud way out there in the distance. And even when it doesn't seem like God's about to do something big, a little bitty tiny cloud, he is always doing something big. We just don't see it. We just don't know it. We don't understand it, right? So fasting magnifies what God is doing in our life. Prayer magnifies what God does in our life. So one of the major reasons people fast is so that they can put up their spiritual antennae. And start seeing what God's up to, right? So many of us have fasted before. I'm not very good at it. I typically try to fast between 10 and 11 a.m. every day because I'm godly. It's after breakfast, before lunch, right? But not very good at it. But when we do that, a lot of us do it so that we can see because we really, really long to have God in our life, right? And so um, throughout the Old Testament, even the New Testament, for the last 2,000 years, people have... Fasted. many people are fasting right now but they really want to see god move in a mighty way as it relates to what's going on in our world and the virus and everything else great reasons to fast but one of the main reasons is magnification they want to see god at work but not just magnification another reason you fast is mourning this mourning piece this grieving and i use the word magnify and mourn because they both start with the elm you know, easier to remember magnify and mourn and so there is throughout the scriptures you will see these significant periods of time where people fast and grieve. There's actually this Jewish ritual called Kariah where people that were they would tear their clothes and reveal and expose their heart and their pain and be vulnerable to other people. Right? So beautiful to think about when Jesus dies and the temple's torn. You kind of have that moment of God revealing his heart to his people. Top to bottom veil. Right? But you see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament there are these moments that people just pause and fast because they're just in deep pain in deep pain and one of the responses to the pain and sorrow either you know intellectually or cognitively or maybe even physiologically there are times where you just can't eat right you're so sick and nauseous you just can't eat and in those moments while you're really really hungry you can't imagine eating something there's this moment of grieving and mourning so you see throughout the scriptures where people would long for God to come be magnified in their life, and they'd fast. But a lot of those times, it was also combined with this deep repentance of, we are so dirty and broken. You can see it with the story of Jonah, right? And these people are putting on sackcloths and going, we we are so sorry, Lord. They're finally their hearts break and they're grieve for their behavior, or the behavior of other people. And so you see throughout the Old Testament, these times when people fast because they want God magnified in their life. Or throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, even now, when people fast because there's just this deep level of grieving and repentance that happens. So throughout the scriptures, there is these times where people fast. And so it makes sense. John, the Baptist, his disciples, they were fasting. One of the things he was saying was, repent for the kingdom of God is near, meaning he was calling his people to an understanding that they were wayward and walked away from God. And he was calling them to prepare the way of the Lord, remove whatever it is so they could see and know God. So it makes sense that they would be Fasting, but that was not a mandate in the scriptures. God does not tell you you have to fast. Now, the Pharisees they picked up on it and thought, hey, we're gonna do it a lot. They actually got pretty good at fasting, and so they started doing these fasts one to two times a week. So they're implementing all these fasts and these spiritual fasts and all these different things, but they were not mandated. In fact, There's only one mandated time in the scriptures about fasting. And it became a a yearly thing. And it shows up, I want to say, Leviticus chapter 16 in this thing called Yom Kippur. Okay? Yom Kippur. So we're going to put this down here. So this is, you know, 30 AD. you got 2020. So we're going to back it up, you know, uh, 1,500 years or so. And you got Yom Kippur. Okay? Now, Yom Kippur is the Jewish holiday called the Day of Atonement. Which, by the way... It's a day of fasting. Why? Because these people wanted God in their life. They wanted God to cover their sins. And they wanted to grieve their behavior for an entire year. So what happened in Yom Kippur is literally be a day set aside called the Day of Atonement where God would, you know, symbolize and show how he covered for his people. So it would be a year, I mean, a day of acknowledging this mourning of how, behavior, how their behavior just walked away from God. It was an acknowledgement of their sin. And then it was a knowledge of them wanting God to do something really great in their life. So what would happen is everybody would fast for the day. And the priest would come, and he would offer these sacrifices. And I've shared this with you a couple weeks back, of these two goats, right? So the priest would offer these two goats. They would, let's see. Um, there we go, goats. So they would, uh, draw, they <laughs> have these two goats, and they draw lots. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, y'all don't need that anymore. Uh, so these two goats, that would, that they would have these two goats really nice goats really clean goats and they draw lots and they do one of two things one of these goats was called the sacrificial goat it was killed and literally was slaughtered and the reason it was slaughtered is because god wanted the people the priests symbolized that people there actually is a real real cost to sin the bible says in the new testament the wages of sin is death but you don't have to be a christian to understand that right Many of you are not going to celebrate with your father or mother this year because of some grievance that's happened in the past. Maybe it was your fault, maybe it was their fault. Right? But there is real deep pain and sacrifice that happened as a result of whatever that situation was. For was sin. And now there's a cost to that sin. Right? You get that all the time. Many of you have walked through some of the worst relational issues in your life. Divorce, all those things. Why? Because we was sin. And there was a cost to that. So this isn't some kind of like far-fetched spiritual mumbo-jumbo. We understand when there's wrong behavior, there is a cost every time for that wrong behavior. I tell you every single time I bring this up, if I back into your car right now, because I'm just, I'm, I'm moving too fast, one of two things has happened. Either I want to pay to get your car fixed, or you're going to go, no, I can't make the pastor pay for that. It's okay, I'll cover it. But do you understand, there's always someone paying for the behavior. Either I'm going to pay for the bad decision, or you're going to pay for my bad decision because it makes you too uncomfortable, and go no going to know Josh has got to pay for it, right? But there's always a cost. There's always a cost for sin. That is not a new or revolutionary thing that's been throughout history, and the Jews had a really good way of responding to that cost, right? Because they couldn't pay for all the stuff. Some of the things that have happened in life, there's no way that you can pay to make it better, Right? There's times when death happens and separation happens because of behavior, not even your behavior, something that someone's done to you, and yet you're still absorbing the cost for that 30, 40, 50 years later. Right? So we understand that. So the Jews had this day, Yom Kippur, a Day of Atonement, where finally all that was kind of this reset button. And it was, it was figurative and literal. It was this promise that God would cover. But there was also the fulfillment that one day he wouldn't just provide a Band-Aid solution. He would provide full sin coverage now and all eternity so there's this mandate in the scriptures leviticus chapter 16 where they walk through what the day looks like they would fast they would beg the lord to show up for them and they would beg the lord to cover their sins so they would fast to magnify him and to mourn their behavior and mourn the brokenness of the world mourn the stuff that had happened to them and this priest would take these two goats and one goat they'd bring and they would slaughter literally the blood would be shed dead goat didn't do anything wrong nothing Right, so you see, innocent sacrifice as a result. You can go all the way back to Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned, they hide, and God goes, "Why are you hiding?" They go, we were afraid." So we hid, and we felt shame. So what does God do to cover their shame? He slaughters an innocent animal and turns in creates leather bikinis. Right? You see, poor animal. That poor animal just happened to walk into the garden at the wrong time. Right? You see, that animal did nothing wrong. Why did it actually get slaughtered in that moment? Because there had to be a covering, literal covering for their shame. And so from that time forward, there was just this understanding that sin has consequences. So on the day of atonement, they would fast. And then one of these goats would be, the sacrificial goat would be slaughtered. And then the blood from this sacrificial goat would be poured out on this other goat. The other goat didn't do anything either. And this goat was called the scapegoat. Now, it's not a very good world for the scapegoat, but it's better than the sacrificial goat. The sacrificial goat dies, the scapegoat, they pour blood on it, and they release it. And that goat takes off. And they watch it, and it finally disappears into the mountains, disappears into, you know, the horizon. In other words, this goat covered your sin, and this goat took the sin as far as the east is from the west. It was this symbol of showing that there was an actual real moment that God kind of forgave them of their sin, set them back on solid ground, and pointed them into a new trajectory again. But they had to do it once a year. And they'd offer all sorts of other sacrifices. Why? Because they're going to keep messing up. And the wages of sin is death. So every year, this was a symbol. But all these symbols were actually pointed to a different sacrificial lamb or goat. A different sacrificial scapegoat. And Jesus, and so all these are pointing to this. So, when these Pharisees would have implemented these fasting, and to come from Leviticus 16, but they're going, no, oh, we shouldn't do it once a year. We should do it once a day or twice a week. And you know what? We'll facilitate it. You can pay your admission price, or you can come be one of our followers, followers and we'll help you fast. So they show up and go, well, John the Baptist fasts, we fast, because we understand that that's how you're godly, but you don't fast, right? And so what we see here is the implementation of something we'll call legalism, right? Legalism is where you turn may into must. You may fast until you must fast. Right, you get legalism was when something good for me, I shouldn't drink that, I shouldn't go there, I shouldn't be around that. Right, is now like I literally know people who sh- should not play golf. So weird, right? Because they're so they're so infatuated with the game and they're so infatuated with getting better. The minute they pick up clubs, right, they're going to now play seven times a week until they get better. Ba- and better and better and completely abandon their family and you go that's strange yeah and that but that person were to start walking around going you shouldn't play golf and you shouldn't play golf and you shouldn't play golf because i can't play golf that's a that is a what what's beneficial to me because it's helpful for me doesn't mean it's beneficial or helpful to you right And so when we take rules that help us live the life we're committed to living and then apply them to everyone else and demand they do the same that's what legalism is and you see it throughout the church. You see it in the way people are dressed. You see it in the way that people have to, how often they have to go to church. You see it in what they're supposed to eat and all those different things. Things they're supposed to say, or the people they're supposed to hang out with, and whether or not they should watch sports on Sundays because it's the Lord's day. And if you're watching the sports, then that means people are playing on that day. And I know y'all don't care about that because of the Eagles, but maybe this year you care about it. I don't really know, right? And so all those different things, you see this this mess in there. So this legalism kind of gets implemented, and that's where religion is really dangerous. Religion, in the sense that it. People believe that they behave well enough that somehow God will like them more. And now all of a sudden they've lost the whole purpose of fasting. They don't you don't follow all the rules and behave because somehow that means oh God's gonna like you again. Right? It's you you surrender your desires, your attention, and hopes of having God be magnified in your life. And you surrender your appetite to mourn the brokenness of your own life, the brokenness of your own family, in hopes that God would provide a covering. And so we see this. We've just got one verse. Sorry, guys. Verse 33. All of a sudden, these Pharisees and scribes, they're being really, really judgy, and they go, well, these guys don't fast. Well, there's lots of reasons you should fast, according to Yom Kippur, but they're not a must. They're a may that they've turned into a must. And so uh, the other thing about these, this legalism is it turns in this meritocracy, right? It's this idea that somehow I gain merit or value by my performance or behavior, which is the exact opposite of the gospel. The gospel tells me, and you, it's so offensive, right? That there is nothing you can do to make God love you more, or there's nothing you can do to earn God's love for you or your value. You are completely inept. I am completely inept in that. There is nothing I can do to, to build a ladder, build a bridge, large enough wide enough to cover all the stuff so I can get all the way back to God and you can see the evidence that through the entire Old Testament God gives the, the Israelites a bunch of rules and laws So you, know, you keep thinking if you have more rules and laws you'll just follow them and everything will be good but the more rules and laws we reveal to you the more evidentiary it is that you can't follow those things so you see this in in uh, legalism this I shouldn't so you can't i may so you must write those things and so we see it and so these are what the pharisees are attacking the god of the universe over jesus isn't fasting so how do you think he's going to respond in light of all this let's see verse 34 and it says this and jesus said to them jesus's words can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them can you make wedding guests fast while the Bridegroom is with them with him, which is really interesting. I read it to you last week, Revelation nineteen, this idea that there'll be this wedding supper when he returns and there's just gonna be this big moment of celebration that when Jesus ushers in his permanent presence, it's a huge feast, feast like the they have with Levi here, but a huge feast and there'll be this big celebration, there'll be this wedding between the bride that's all of us in the bridegroom Jesus we get invited we get to participate we get to be the guest of honor it's this big beautiful thing and so Jesus is now alluding to what he's going to tell his buddy John about who's going to write the book of Revelation later there's going to be this moment where everything's made right and perfect but he's going to give you this picture right now hey if there is a wedding and you go to the wedding you're invited to the wedding and the bridegroom is there the guest of honors are there is that a time where you're going to mourn are you not going to eat Because you're going to go like, I know, I can't eat. This is a really, really sad day. No, it's not a sad day. We have the groom, Jesus talking about himself, his presence. So this is not a day to mourn. This is a day to celebrate. Now let's go a little deeper. Is this a day that you're begging God to finally bring his presence into your life? He's going, if the wedding's happening, the groom is already there. You're not fasting going, well, I hope one day the groom will show up. I hope one day I'll see the groom, right? You're not going to get caught up in the legalese of the moment because right in front of you, is a day to celebrate, and right in front of you is the groom himself. So Jesus is going, this is what's really weird. You must not understand what the purpose of fasting is. The purpose of fasting is to magnify, to bring God close to you, to see God, and to, to mourn, to deal with your sin and your brokenness. But do you not understand if I am here in your presence? That's not a day that you mourn or beg for mourning that magnification, right? And This is so important to me. One of the things that I'm so worried about, even in this room, in 2020, as a church that boy do we love worship and singing songs and teaching the bible boy do i love that love the felt board i love these things but i'm so concerned sometimes guys, that we can get so caught up in making sure we have all the right pieces and the right transitions the right videos that we're doing all the stuff and never really inviting jesus into the room and he's going i'm sitting right here and you're talking about me like i'm not in the room you're talking about me like i'm in some far off place do you not understand that i whisper like throughout the scriptures i whisper you know what that means i'm close and somehow we miss that so often and so literally he's going look guys you're talking about the same stuff you're talking about all the rules you're talking about all these theological debates and you're missing the point that i'm in the room i'm in the room if i'm in the room it's not a time to mourn if i'm in the room it's not a time that you fast and go boy i hope god's close maybe out here come on in he's like i'm here I mean, are you looking up instead of looking out? And here I am. And so Jesus is going to say to them in this really unique way, he's going to go, Are you going to tell wedding guests to fast while the bridegroom is with them? Are you going to tell them to fast? Now, these Pharisees, and we're going to read in 2nd Psalm 45, understood this imagery because God talks about being the groom, and that's being the bride throughout the Old Testament see it in the book of psalm which i want to read you see it in the story of hosea and gomer you see it throughout the scriptures they would have understood this they have, these scribes would have known the scriptures probably written them down they would have been aware of this and he's going hey i'm right here why would you tell people to fast when they're actually doing the very best thing remember the whole goal of the gospel is that i will be with my people forever hey pharisees you see what's happening here i'm with my people right now forever it's like that old story of the um fisherman who's out fishing and he's catching fish and uh he's on the beach and he's enjoying it and he's doing a great job he's catching all sorts of fish like just doing a fabulous job he has this fancy bait whatever it is he knows what he's doing he knows the right spot and some guy walks up to him and goes hey you should really take advantage of this like you're really good at this you could turn this into an occupation like you could get a couple more poles get a couple you know more helpmates, and you could turn what isn't just as little bitty enterprise as you fishing into a full conglomerate and you could collect lots and lots of fish and lots and lots of fish and he's like yeah yeah then what'd i do then you could build this big enterprise and you could collect lots and lots of money and get all the stuff and put it all into the you know into the coffers and you could then be set yourself up for life and he's like yeah yeah then i'd retire yeah you'd retire and then you know what i would do I would come right back out here to this spot. I'd grab my fishing pole, and I'd fish. So you're talking I spending all this time and energy trying to get somewhere way off in the future, and he's like, do you not understand? I'm already in this spot now. So Jesus is going, all this time and energy, following all the rules, and here I am. And you're going to understand, like, the whole goal of the gospel is me with my people forever, and here it is. We're parting. We're having a feast. We're laughing. We're loving each other. It's all right here. We're celebrating, and you're saying, no, you should do something else. And then Jesus says, hey, there, the days will come, verse 35, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. There'll be a day they will long for my presence again. There'll be a day that they'll want to see me up close again. There'll be a day that they will grieve deeply at the loss of my presence. There will be a day when that happens. He's referencing this. Horrific death where Jesus actually becomes the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat. They're referencing that, hey, there's going to be a day, and it's actually not too far off, where they're going to be fasting again, and they're going to be grieving again, and they're going to be longing for me to be close again, but that's not today. But in those days, yeah, they'll probably fast, and they do. See this in the first century in Acts where the, the church starts fasting. Why? Because they're grieving the loss of their Savior, they're grieving the brokenness of the world, and they're longing to have God's presence magnified in their life so he tells them that it's almost as if like he's saying this and they don't quite get it so what jesus is going to do now and you're going to see this for weeks months years okay he's going to start sharing these parables and the parables basically it's for people like us and the pharisees who sometimes aren't the best at um, uh, personal awareness right or um, social intelligence where sometimes it's hard for us to pick on on pick up what's right in front of us we're really bad at seeing our own blind spots and we really hate to have other people tell us their blind spots you get this right if someone walks up and just offers you criticism it's really hard to receive but if that person can help you come to a conclusion on your on on your own that you think it's on your own but they help you come to the conclusion you get a lot more awareness and a lot more application from it so jesus is going to offer these parables over and over again with the hope that people get awareness about themselves and about god so every parable gives us kind of a picture of the kingdom A picture of who God is and a picture of who we are. So now he's going to start sharing these parables. Now he's going to share two. I'm going to read them, make some observations about them. They're pretty interesting. You might be aware of them. And so he's going to offer the parables to give us better understanding about ourselves and about God and this kingdom. You got it? Verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of garment, a piece from a new garment, and uh, puts it in an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. So just want to be clear here. A lot of these, is like you know, you're familiar with Aesop's fables. There's supposed to be a moral at the end of the story. Jesus isn't going to tell them what the moral is. There's no application so far. There is no command. You see that? It's just an observation. And so he's just offering observation that all humans then would have known. I think we probably pick up on it as well. It's not like they, you go to TJ Maxx and just buy new clothes, right? You want your clothes to last as long as they possibly can. And when you wear those clothes a lot, they wear out. So one of the dilemmas with when clothes wear out is that if you have an old clothes that's been washed over and over again in the rivers, hung up to dry, you know, hardened, all those different things, that something's happened to that piece of old material that has done all of its kind of movement and changing and shrinking right you know this even if you wash your clothes now first couple times they shrink and then they might not shrink as much so all Jesus is saying here is hey you're familiar with this you got robes on I see some patches on the bottom of your robes right whenever you get a hole in your clothes you don't go out and get a new piece of fabric and put it on the old one because you know what will happen if you go and take that piece of fabric and stitch it onto your clothing then the next time you wash it hang it up in the sun to dry that new piece of clothing is going to shrink a lot more than the old piece of clothing guess what's going to happen it's actually going to rip your clothes more and make them look worse so you can't patch something old just by putting something new on top of the something old you got it really really simple and you go what does that mean so wait does he not like old things you like the, Not like new things. Which one is it, Jesus? You're saying you can't take something old and put something new. Does that mean all the old stuff just needs to stay new? And all the new stuff, old stuff just needs to stay old? And the new stuff needs to stay new? What in the world is he talking about? First parable. And you can imagine. They hear it. Some are like, oh, yeah, yeah. What's he talking about? Oh, I don't know what he's talking about, right? They're all confused. No, Jesus, in a really beautiful sense doesn't elaborate on that he just decides to offer another parable thanks jesus so verse 37 it says this so far no no not a command yet right right just an observation and no one puts new wine into old wine skins if he does the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed no this is just as confusing, particularly for us 2,000 years later going, okay, he's the fulfillment of the law, but what is he saying? I don't know about this. and So maybe you are familiar and uh, ordered on Amazon, because, you know, really want to pump up big business right now. I want to spend my energy and time doing this um, wineskin, okay? They actually still use these a lot in Spain. This one is actually two liters. Watch this. Let me show you. If you, I haven't watched it, so this is gross. But uh, So... So this will hold a two-liter diet melt and right here, this thing will, right? But can you believe that? Two liters in this, right? So what would happen? No, people still use these today. You know, they're, this is like hipster. You should get one, right? And especially if you're in school, carry this to class. People are like, man, that wineskin and that satchel you got over there, those things are Really nice, right? And that scooter you're driving, right? Is that a Vespa? Anyway, sorry. Oh, I like your man bun. Sorry, that went too far. And so, but anyway, you got the wineskins here. And so the way that this would work is, um, I mean, they would be used to, I mean, it's like a canteen, right? But what happen, really pretty simple process, um, is they would uh, take grape juice, right? Crushed grape juice, and they would fill up a wineskin. They'd have like a little funnel to put in. And all they would do then, and the wineskin literally is just, maybe maybe the goat, was turned into this. This is sewed up leather. Is all it is. And so what would happen is they would uh, put grape juice in it. Welch's regular non-alcoholic grape juice, right? And then they would just hang it up. Hang it up. And over a period of time, uh, that grape juice would ferment. I don't know if you've ever seen something ferment. Pretty neat, neat process. And when it ferments, it releases gases. You follow me? Follow me? So new wineskin, fresh dead animal. It's still got lots of elasticity to it right and so it hangs up and as the as the wine sits in it it starts the gases start to expand and this thing goes from like one liter to two liter it really really expands and what's happening inside here is this grape juice is becoming fresh wine you follow me so it's fermenting this is becoming an alcoholic beverage hanging up they would have understood this they would have known it and there's a couple different reasons one it was actually alcohol this wasn't like well it's kind of like this diluted alcohol no it was actually alcohol you see throughout the old testament noah literally has gets off the gets off the boat and gets completely trashed on wine right and so you see this throughout so there this was real wine and so that would kind of expand now pharisees while we're really judgy they like their wines okay and uh so when jesus is saying hey this is not like a new wine skin and an old wine skin. If you take a, if you're starting new wine, you're not going to put it in old wine skin. Why? Because it doesn't have any elasticity. It doesn't have any. Can't, it can't expand anymore. So if you hang it up, old wine skin, and you put grape juice in it, and you kind of leave it be so that it will firm it and you're creating some new wine, guess what's going to happen? It's going to bust. And it's going to crack. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to leave it up there, and you leave it out there for a while. You're going to come back, and you basically are just going to have a nasty mess all over there going to ruin your wine skin and you've just created a real mess when you take old and combine it with new you've just made a big mess and so jesus is going you know this This is simple right he's saying this to the pharisees if you want to make wine you don't put new wine grape juice in an old wine skin because if he does the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed so he's offered the clothing he's offered this and then he offers one more comment on and he says this But, new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Okay? So Jesus has offered two really strange parables. And at the beginning of each parable, he starts with, and no one. No one tears. And no one puts in. That word, no one there, just implies that there is no counterexample. This is um, exclusive. He is saying, this is the case every single time. There are no options where this isn't the case. If you put new patches on old clothes, it's going to ruin it all. If you put new wine in old wineskins, you're just going to create a mess every single time. So he offers that, and he says you have to put, but new wine must be put into a fresh wineskin. Okay, there you go. That's the end. You got it figured out? Let's pray. We're done? Strange, right? So let's figure out what's going on here. And so let's talk through some things. And so what he's actually saying, really, really important. It's going to take me a long time to, to get all the way around this. What he's actually saying is, hey, there is this new experience that's happening for people like Levi. And what's happening is I came to give them my Presence, meaning, I came to be with them. And this is going to get crazy. For the next couple of years, he's going to walk with them. And then a couple of years later, he's going to say, Hey, guys, I'm about to leave you, and my presence is going to depart from you. You can read it in John 14, 15, and 16, kind of his last discourse during his last supper. And he goes, I am going to leave you. In other words, I'm going to take my presence that I've brought to you, God with you, and I'm going to leave. And they go, Oh, no, and he's going, But it's good news because I'm actually going to give you another another an advocate is what it says like myself and this is where he refers to the holy spirit and i'm no longer going to be here and it's good news and i'm not going to be with you because what's going to happen is i'm going to give you my presence inside of you you got it so no longer is this just me around you this is me dwelling within you and they're going what why i don't understand this going, no no no. this is really good news because i'm going to go back to the father Jesus' little buddy John's gonna tell us later that this is really good news because when we confess our sins, God is, Jesus is advocating with the Father, and He's faithful and just and going to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is really good. So now we get an advocate who's sitting with God. And he gives us his presence. This isn't that crazy to think about. Remember how I just blew into this thing and it kind of expanded? We see in the Old Testament that's how life began. God breathes life into humankind. It's his breath that initiates life right? And you can see even in these beautiful pictures in the Old Testament, all these promises, you can look at these dry bones in Ezekiel, where God's going, I'm going to raise up a group of people who are going to have my presence. and are going to partner with me. And how does that get going? He breathes life into them. And we see in the New Testament, he talks about the spirit, the advocate, but he also talks about this this holy breath, this breath that's going to breathe in. And we see it actually happen in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, where God has breathed his life into people. So he's going, here's the really good news. There's going to be this insert of this fresh breath fresh presence of me into your life this is going to happen and here's the crazy thing And this is where i want to go oh i may spend a lot of time trying to explain it but i can't explain it it stinks because i want to explain it but i i i, I can't put words on it that you go yep 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 i get it now because hear me this thing this thing is not expository teaching it's ex, experiential living you follow me? There's some really good scriptures, and I can talk to you about them all. Talk to you about the holy breath of God. But that just sounds strange, and it would have been strange to us. This is experiential. And the only way I can explain it to you in a way that makes sense to me is I was this. I was a broken pagan. And I'm talking about I became a pastor before I really fell in love with Jesus. So as a 20-year-old, I was I was a Pharisee, religious, teaching kids how to perform correctly in front of their parents in the church, right? And then all of a sudden, there was this new breath of grace that was breathed in me. And I am distinctly different now than I was at 21 years of age. And the only way I can explain this is experts. I'm going, I can't even, I don't even understand it. But I'll tell you, it is available to you. You get to receive that, but it doesn't fit into the old wineskin. It's a new wine skin that's going, you have to think, you have to change everything you think about, which is really important, because when John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of God is near, that's actually what has to happen. So if you're listening online, or you're out in the parking lot, or you're right here, the, the first step is actually renovating your whole brain about this. You go, well, how do you receive and experience God's Spirit? particularly for those of us who long for that and go, well, I don't really know that I'm, I'm really having his life be magnified in my life. I don't know that I really, really experience that in the way that I long to. And you go, well, how do you do that? When Jesus has just told us, it doesn't happen by taking a new patch and patching it the old. It doesn't happen by taking new wine and pouring it into the old wine. In fact, remember earlier we saw Jesus start this with an analogy about a a wedding, and I told you throughout the scriptures, there's this picture of a wedding where God comes and He marries His people, and He makes all things right. We talk about it in terms of consummation—that one day all things will be made right again. And though that promise and that fulfillment that'll happen in the future, right, um, gets alluded to over and over again throughout the scriptures. And let me just read you one instance, and this is Psalm 45. So, if you're not familiar with the Psalms, it's basically a—it's more than this, but it's like a Hebrew hymnal, okay? And so, lots of poems about God worship songs about god uh so there's these moments where god is really being magnified in them there's also moments of deep grieving and mourning in them and so uh the psalms weren't written by just one person we think of david who wrote them but he wrote about half of them you know so 150 75 of them 73 i think somewhere around there but they were actually compiled over about a thousand year period so some of these psalms go all the way back to this time of Yom Kippur. All the way back here. And they get as close to about 400 years, 500 years B.C. before Jesus shows up. So it's a long period of time for the Psalms, right? And there's this one in, in about 1,000 years before, right? So 1,000 years before, there's this Psalm 45. And it's written. And it's this beautiful poem of oh, what God comes to do. And let me just read it to you, just two verses. You ready? Psalm 45, I'm going to read verse 10 and 11. This is what it says. This is a picture of the bride and the groom. It says this. Here, oh daughter, consider and incline your ear. And if you're familiar, this is because it comes out of my mouth about once a month just in teaching. this. I'm just so moved by this, right? So this is a presentation that there is going to be a bride who's now going to be invited into marriage by a groom. This is the DTR and the engagement moment all in one, right? So that this guy is announcing, the king is announcing that he is going to come and marry this daughter this bride right now this is alluding to what's going to happen here in the new testament when jesus comes back but also happening here when jesus shows up this invitation that jesus is talking about why in the world would you fast when the bridegroom's here so he goes listen incline and give ear this means hey hey pay attention listen right then it says this forget your people and your father's house now this is talking to a bride but it's also talking to all of us he's going he's going here's the thing you got to forget everything you know about this you can't put this into an old wine skin. You got to forget it all. You got to forget what you're taught. You got to forget what was it implanted in you. You got to forget how you find your value. You got to forget the culture, the current of the culture you've been caught up in. You got to you got to forget all that stuff because in that you are not going to find God's presence. It's not in all the old stuff. It's not in the old packages. So even now, we got to forget the pageantry of Christmas, right? We got can't just apply all this to this old story. No, you got to pause and forget all that stuff. Just for a second, just forget all that and start with a brand new clean slate. So forget it. Forget it. All of us forget it. Forget it. And this is what it says. When you do that, forget this people in your father's house. It says, and the king will desire your beauty. That word Desire, there is a Hebrew word, ava, and it literally means to be captivated by. It's so crazy. The God of the universe is captivated by you. He loves you more than you could ever understand. Hear me. If you're hearing this for the very first time and you feel like you are unloved and unworthy, you no, know, no, God's going, no, no, no. You got to throw away all those old words. You got to throw away all that damage that's been said and done to you. I know all that sin causes deep pain, you got to throw it all away because the king. Is enthralled by your beauty. Hear me, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less or any more. He is captivated by you. Do you get this? Like, it's so weird as a dude to talk about, but he is so proud that he made me. He is so proud of the human he created in you. Not your mom, not your dad, not your sister brother. In you. This is for you. He's going, no, no, you can't put this story into an old wineskin. you got to forget all that stuff because this is about you and him. That's what Christmas is, his presence. God with you, not with us. God with you. God with you. So did you forget all the old stuff? Could you just understand that the king is just... He loves you the whole purpose of the gospel is for you to be with him forever that's the story of christmas the reason for the season is not jesus the reason for this season is you god put on a body for you and he's going it's so hard for you to get because you're trying to put this newness into an old wineskin. skin it's for you So forget the rest of it. Forget everything else you thought about Christianity. Forget all the rules. Forget all the fasting. None of that matters. Jesus is going, look, you're trying to add to the gospel when I'm right here with Levi. Let it just be me and him. It's just you and him. He is captivated by you. It sounds so egocentric. And yet it's so true that God of the universe loves you. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing talking about a wedding. Like Paul, who was Saul, who was a guy who was was a, of the greatest level of Pharisees and Sanhedrin and legalists, murdering people who were living with sinners, operating with sinners, declaring this good news that God was for all people. Because Paul was like, it's not people. It's for the ones who behave. And so this guy named Saul, who has this conversion moment with Paul, he, he falls in love with Jesus and, and literally Jesus goes, Paul, why are, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you not understand that I'm here for you? And so Paul is writing to a church at Corinth. By the way, before even this story of the Luke's gospel shows up, like 55 A.D., so maybe 10, 15 years later, 20 years later, whatever that is, the gospel of Luke shows up. But Paul's writing a letter to the Corinth, which was a pretty interesting place. They had lots of affluence. They were very enlightened for the time, progressive, good politics, good government, all those things. And Paul, tells us on something so crazy. Let me just read it to you. It says this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 getting in verse 14, when we know get the gospel for, is for us, and what does that mean? What do we do with this? Remember I told you there's two things about the gospel. It's about his presence for you and his partnership for others, right? And this says this. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. There's been one sacrificial goat, one scapegoat, one who's died for all. You don't have to do Yom Kippur every year anymore, right? Because one, Jesus paid the price for for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus his presence and his partnership right for the for once and for all therefore all have died so Paul's going you got to get this like this is new wineskin this is revolutionary no longer is about your performance it's just a reception of this and you just have, to have the right container to receive and it says this and he died for all that those who might who live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, their sake died and was raised. So he's going, now this guy did it all for one. He was the sacrificial goat. He was the scapegoat. He does one death for all people. He covers all sin. Everything in the Old Testament that was promised is fulfilled in Jesus, meaning all of us who believe this, all of us who receive this, get Jesus' presence now and for all eternity. So it says this, from now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. We don't think about the old wineskin. We are no longer that person. You are no longer that person. And for the very first time you got this, you are a different person. He's going to tell you what kind of different person you are. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. You thought about the baby and the pageantry, but no, no, this is different. This is him and you forever, right? This is different than this, okay, I pray the prayer, I do the things. No, this is God with us. He loves me. He did this for me. According to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Watch this. Therefore, you got this? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, what he's saying to us is going, no, no, no. It's not you add Jesus to everything else. It's not like you just tack Jesus on to the Christmas season, or you tack Jesus on to the Easter season, or you tack Jesus on to the Hallmark card. No, 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 no. All the old is gone, and then it is all in Christ. You are a new person. You aren't who you used to be. You aren't who your dad said you were. You aren't who your ex reminded you that you were. You're none of those things. You are a new creation. So Jesus is going, why in the world would they fast when I just came in and ushered a new creation? Like, I'm here with them. And he says this, that you are a new creation. All is past. All this is from God, whom through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, this here goes. "No, No, no, you have to fill yourself with Christ, and you are now a new wine, new wine. And it's not just for you, but it's to share with others. Right? Not only did God reconcile Himself to you, come and give you His presence. Guess what He then did? Not only did He give you His presence, He released you in his partnership your job my job if you get this is every single day and every single way our job is to participate in that reconciliation what that word means literally means a restoration to favor right that is someone who wasn't a child of god who now gets back in the house and is now a child of the most high god right that is what this is So it's a restoration to the god of the universe's favor right Talk to my kids about this all the time. It's so interesting, is no one can address the king at two o'clock in the morning, right? No one can wake him up. Except for their three his three-year-old daughter or son, who can not only wake him up, he they can wake him up and ask him to wipe their bottom. You see that? That's the restoration of favor. Like you get to approach the God of the universe and he's thrilled that you do. I'm never bothered. Well, most of the time I'm not bothered when one of my little kids crawls in my bed, right? love their presence. Like, that's not an annoying part of parenthood. Some of you miss that so much, right? And so you get to approach God, right? So you get to receive his reconciliation and be ministers of that reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, ready for this? Therefore, as a result of this, this is what God came to offer you, that we should forget our people and our Father's house. He came to offer you himself. Therefore, as a result of that, you get his presence. We are ambassadors. That's, that language there is very high esteem. This is like a statesman. He's going, no, 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 you have the highest level. You know, Joe Biden's right now picking his cabinet and his ambassadors. God's going, you're higher than that, right? Like, you are, you're ambassadors for the good news of the gospel. You are a statesman. You're an elder. You have a bedroom in the kingdom, Right? God making his appeal through us. We implore you. This is Paul's going, Could you get this? On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Allow his new wine to fill your new wineskin. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So he's literally saying... Do you you got to get this. Maybe it's the first time. The the greatest gift is God gives you all the gifts and takes away all the junk. He who knew no sin, Jesus, stepped in. He became the sacrificial goat, scapegoat. He became sin. He became sin. He was slaughtered once and for all so that you and I could be children of God, that we could be righteous before God, that we could be in right standing before God. So that is the story of Christmas is you and God are perfectly okay. In fact, you're not just okay, you are great, you are excellent, you are perfect. And this isn't some prosperity gospel. We still have junk in our life that we have to repent of, but this moment that you get to walk out of here, or you get to close this computer screen, or you get to pull out of the parking lot, you and God can be right with one another, and all you got to do is receive his presence, receive his covering, forget your people in your father's house. Why? For the king is enthralled by your beauty. And it's like, oh, that's so pretty, that's so beautiful, then why don't we do it? Why don't we just throw away the old wineskin. Why don't we go, God, come fill us, fill us, fill us, fill us, fill us, fill us. fill us. There's a reason. So Jesus concludes his nice little parable with one more verse. Let me read to you Luke 5, 39. This is what he says. And no one, after drinking old wine skin or old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. So Jesus gives this beautiful thing and goes, you can't fill in this, but here's the problem. You don't want this why because the old's working for you and you got food in your pantry you got clothes in your closet you got good health care got good safety why in the world would you risk all the comfort and security for this so he's going the problem pharisees is you like your old wine you didn't have you have the palate for new wine yet And so, so many of us just kind of shrink back and go, no, this is another Christmas about getting and moving and participating and not about serving and caring. And like, we can't get that the beauty of the new wineskin and the new wine is walking across the street and engaging with our neighbor and inviting them into a church, inviting them into the gospel. We can't get what it's like to really, really give more away, serve more, release more, because we have gotten really, really comfortable with our old wine and our old wineskins. And so Jesus is going, hey, Pharisees, you're not going to get this because you're not devastated. But one day many of you will be devastated. In that moment, you'll go, Jesus, that's all I want. And I've learned throughout the scriptures and throughout my life, there's only two ways to really receive this, only two ways. Either through humility or humiliation. Almost every time where I finally have purged myself of the old wineskin and invited God in, almost every single time, it's always been through humiliation, guys. So I just implore you this Christmas season. He goes, no one after drinking old wine desires new. I just implore you. I dare you. I challenge you to just consider what it'd be like to taste new wine in this. Consider what it would be like to flip all the Christmas script upside down. Consider what it'd be like to stop asking the question, "Why? Why? How much should I you know, give?" Instead, start asking the question, "How much should I keep?" Right. So thinking, "How much should I serve?" Or "How, how often I have to serve?" To "How much." To, to say how much do I need to rest right to just flip the whole thing and I am I am convinced that if we would taste that new wine and get it in our palate and start to experience it it will change everything but the problem is still in the Pharisees is that we like the old wine and so we're not really interested in trying something new and here's what it seems like trying something new seems pretty reckless leaving that job giving that away Saying that to your neighbor, sacrificing more. It seems really reckless. And I would just say, and the band's going to come up here, when you get there, then I think finally, 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 you're going to start experiencing what Christmas is all about. Because the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus coming and making himself known, it was reckless. He stepped out of heaven, all the comfort, large cupboards, all the food, all the glory, and he stepped out and he put on human flesh in the form of a baby. That is reckless if it's not true. That is reckless if God is not in charge, but God is in charge. And so it is reckless. God showing up as a baby, and yet it's the greatest story ever told, and it's the story that's available to you. So what would it look like for our kind of love to mimic Christ's kind of love, which is reckless in view of the old wineskin, but is glorious and good in view of the new wine skin? so what's going to happen is the band is going to come and we're going to sing this song talking about this baby in a manger and declaring this reckless love and i'm going to ask god to start changing our wineskin and pouring this new wineskin so we can start experience this glory and goodness and pleasure and joy that comes from this reckless abandonment that we trust jesus fully and we go "No, no no god we don't want to put that into the old us we want to put you into the new us so would you make us a new creation the band's going to lead us in a song and we're going to sing. Would you stay with me as we sing?
1: Leave you with this prayer. Um, it's a prayer of confession for the community to make, and it says, "Emmanuel, God with us. Look in mercy on our anxious lives. Day by day, we struggle to achieve, rarely stopping to ask if our achievements match Your will. Grant us Your hope, O God. Day by day, we battle to communicate, rarely remembering to check if our communication is a channel for Your good news." Grant us your peace, O God. Day by day, we endeavor to control, rarely pausing to ensure that first we are controlled by your Spirit. Give us your joy, O God. Forgive the frantic fury of our anxious lives. Speak to us in the midst of the struggles of daily living. Catch us now. We confess to fix our thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. We confess to think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. We pray God, Emmanuel, be with us this Advent season. Amen. So we pray that you have a wonderful week. We hope to see you in any way, shape, or form next week and for Christmas Eve. We'll see you soon.